Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Thank you. We're just going to take a moment to get on because we have to transition to for those who are going to be watching on live. So we're just going to take a moment before I get right into it. But you can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3. We finally made it to chapter 3. Luke's gospel. I tell you, not having that greeting time just threw me all off. I don't know about you, but I'm just so used to that time and that break. It feels like I'm rushing through everything. So hopefully I'll be able to catch up as we come in here into the rest of the message. But we're going to start off. We're in Luke chapter 3. Get ready, he's coming is the title. We're looking at verses 1 through 6. Now before we begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you you ever heard the phrase, you had one job? You had one job. Now typically when you hear that phrase, it's usually used in a derogatory term. Meaning you had one job, you just need to do that and do it well, but you failed. And you see that many times you had one job. Well, today we're going to look at at a man who had one job to do, but he succeeded and he succeeded very well. And we're going to be looking at him over the next few weeks. Last week, we considered what did Jesus know and when did he know it? What did Jesus know and when did he know it? Speaking of his humanity and also his divinity. So what did he know about his divinity and when did he know it? Well, we saw from last week that Luke answers that question by focusing on Jesus as a 12-year-old attending the Passover with his parents. And in that scene, we learn that Jesus, at at least 12 years of age, had an awareness and a consciousness of his purpose and relationship with the Father. Well, today, as we move on, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. He's going to take center stage momentarily as Luke records John's role as the prophet who is who is preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Now, if we had read previously of, of John's miraculous conception, his birth, and even his early years, now Luke opens this third chapter by recounting John's public ministry. So in Luke chapter 3, 1 through 6, it's here on the monitor. Uh, we're going to read the first three verses first, but again, follow along with your Bible, and we'll see if I can get these words close and correct in pronunciation. But in the 15th year, Luke writes, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip is Tetrarch of the region of Atura and uh, Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Father, I pray that as we open up your word, let us open it up with a a sobriety of mind, understanding that this is your word revealed to us, and Father, that it is relevant to us as is the day it was written. And so help us as we do that work of of looking at Luke's writing and what he wants us to be certain of, that as we look at John's life, I pray that you would help us to uh, uh, ease us from any distraction, uh, keep us focused, but above all, our hearts tender and open to the Holy Spirit that he may work and do his work, that we may respond accordingly. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Now, in this passage, Luke is going to point out six main observations concerning John the Baptist's ministry. So we're just going to look at those as we go through. The first thing that we want to see, these are not on the monitor, so you can just kind of write them down, is that Luke is going to point out to the time period of John the Baptist's ministry. The first thing we're going to see is when did John the Baptist appear? As we come to this passage, the writer updates us on John the Baptist as he begins his public ministry. In Luke's pursuit to give a certainty to his Gentile readers, he grounds his account here in this passage uh, by listing the political and religious leaders at the time his ministry began. This serves to give us a confidence in his report. But it also serves to remind us that the people and events in the scripture involve a, uh, involve a real time, a real place, and real people. These are real historical events that are taking place. Again, this gives evidence that God not only steps into history, but is very active in all things related to his creation, especially when it comes to his plan of redemption. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 26. When the apostle Peter would proclaim, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together, he preaches, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. But verse 28 tells us to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God is a God who works actively in creation. He steps into history. He is writing, he is ordaining and moving the events of history. So in this time, as the fullness of Gentiles come in and John is ready to prepare the way, we see that John gives us historically who were the leaders, the religious and political leaders in that time. Luke has given us some historical precision that puts the date of John the Baptist's ministry beginning around 28 to 29 A.D. Well, number two, the second thing that Luke points out is not only to the time reference, but he also points to the person of John the Baptist. He opens up, and we're going to see a little bit more of John's life than we had before. John, as you may remember, is considered the last of the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets. He's considered a transitional figure from the old to the new. He breaks the 460 years of silence since the time of the prophet Malachi. It is Malachi who prophesies under the Holy Spirit in Malachi 3.1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Jesus himself told the crowds, as you see here in the monitor, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. He says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, speaking of John the Baptist. And Jesus asked, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Was it a reed that was shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? And then he answers that question. A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he who is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus finishes by saying, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, as we have learned earlier in the first chapter of Luke, John the Baptist is that promised son that was given miraculously to Zechariah and Elizabeth 
in their old age. He was to be raised in the custom of the Nazarenes, who the angel Gabriel commanded must not drink wine or strong drink, and also promised that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Luke has already told us that John went into the wilderness where he grew and became strong in the Spirit. We are now told that God breaks his silence and once again ordains a prophet to speak to his people on his behalf. For John was in the wilderness when the word of God came. So he's setting John the Baptist is that transitional last Old Testament prophet who's preparing the way for the Lord. Thirdly, as we move through, we see that then Luke points to the place of John the Baptist's ministry. Where is he going to minister? And I think this is interesting in verse 3, we read that John went into all the region around the Jordan. Now, this references the wilderness up and down the Jordan River. This is most likely near the site where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, which is a full day's journey at that time from Jerusalem. What I found is interesting is that John was not sent to Jerusalem or some other population center to preach and to share that the Messiah was coming. If you and I were putting together a committee together, or they asked our opinion, we would say, well, you got to go into the city, right? you got to go into the urban areas. you got to go where everyone is. But what we see here is that John goes into the wilderness, and people come out to him. And as we'll see next week, that included religious leaders, it included Pharisees, it included uh, tax collectors, it included Roman soldiers, it included so many People had to come out to the desert area to hear and see him preach. It was inconvenient to see him. As we shall see in a moment, this is going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Just on a side note, how often do we go and hear the word of God when it's inconvenient? And I'm so thankful for the many of you. It had been easier for you to stay home. And I know that this is a time that's, that, that, that's, that's worrisome to many. And I'm not making a, an accusation or a claim here. But many times we are not ready to hear the word of God unless it's convenient for us. The fourth thing that we're going to point out here as we move through this passage is that Luke now points out the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. And this is important. He points out to the purpose. Going back 460 years to the past, you and I can read of Yahweh's promise to Malachi. It's found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where God promises, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Look again. He says, I'm going to send to you one who's going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's speaking of the Lord's wrath. That's speaking of his day of judgment. He says, before that day comes, I am going to send one who comes in the spirit of Elijah and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, as I pointed out earlier, Jesus declares that John the Baptist is that prophet. He is the one of Elijah. He is that promised prophet to come. Luke has already written that John plays an important role in the restoration of Israel. This was promised in Gabriel words to Zechariah. If you're still there in Luke, look at Luke chapter 1. Just turn a page over if you must. And look at verse 16. Gabriel says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Does that sound familiar? It's a prophecy of Scripture. 
and he will be gold before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he has a role of, of being a preparer. His, his role was to, to help prepare people to, to change their hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit. This was also declared in Zechariah's uh, prophecy or uh, prophetic words of praise at John's birth. If you're still in Luke 1, look at verse 76. We looked at this at some time ago, but again, he says, And you, child, Zechariah, given a poem, says, Will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of sin. Luke points out the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. The Zondervan Bible Dictionary comments that his mission, John the Baptist's mission, was to prepare the people for the advent, for the coming of the Messiah so that when he makes his appearance, they would recognize and accept him. He's coming. His arrival is near. Get ready. Prepare. It's like you and I, if we're expecting company to come, and we know that they're coming, and so we begin to clean our house, to straighten up. Why? Because they're coming, and we want all things to be ready. This was the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. He had one job to do. Make way of the Lord. Prepare for the Lord. Which brings us to number five. As we move through this pretty quickly, as Luke points out the proclamation of John the Baptist's ministry. What was he to say? How was he to prepare it? Luke writes that John the Baptist went proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to consider each of these words one by one. First, we look at the word proclaiming, to proclaim. That means to tell, to urge, uh, the urge, the acceptance of a message with warnings of consequences. It's to tell forth of what's coming on, what's about to happen. To baptism means to immerse or to dip into water, underwater. It's exactly what baptism means in the Greek. Repentance here means a change of a mind. It's the change of an attitude and thoughts and behaviors. It implies a moral change of the, of the hearer. Then we see he's proclaimed baptism, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness refers to a pardon, to a release, a cancellation of a debt or deliverance. Now you and I must remember that by the time of John's appearance, the Jewish expectation of deliverance from oppression was at its peak. Now many men had come before John proclaiming that they were the Messiah. They had drawn many to their cause only to be disappointed as each and every one of these men proved not to be the Messiah, the promised king. Yet the people continued to look for that deliverance that was promised by Yahweh through the writings of the prophets. As you and I come to the end of here, or the beginning of this first century, it is at its heightened sense of anticipation and desperation that John enters the, pit, the picture with the words that they've been longing to hear. He is coming. The Messiah is near. And it's with this simple message and command that he says, there must be a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you and I must not confuse John's message with that of the gospel that will be later preached by Christ and the apostles. For you and I know from Scripture that baptism is not required for repentance nor for the forgiveness of sin. John was not preaching about salvation as you and I know it, but, 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 but about preparing one's heart for the coming of the Messiah. As you and I shall see more next week, John's call for the baptism of repentance was to symbolize and to testify that the person was submitting to Yahweh and was ready for the Messiah's long-awaited appearance. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to give the background on why is John doing baptism? As you look through the Old Testament scriptures, there's, there's no Jewish baptism really spoken of. Why is he asking for a baptism? The Jews did not practice baptism as a custom, though it was rooted in the ritual cleansing of the law. As we went back through Exodus and Leviticus these last few years, we saw that the cleansing, the purity cleansing rites was something that they were used to. It was something that they would do to make themselves prepared for worship. But it was also normal for Gentiles who would, who would come and convert to Judaism. So there was baptism for that. But as we also see, it also has its roots in the promise of Yahweh that he gave to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. Look at me in Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at verse 24. This is a wonderful promise. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all of the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. This is God speaking to Israel. This time Israel is in Babylon. They, they have been oppressed. They have been uh, taken away from their land. For 70 years they would live in a land that was not their own. But God speaking through Ezekiel. Ezekiel is in Babylon at this time. He says, I will take, uh, take, uh, take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries that you've been dispersed and I will bring you back to your own land, speaking of Israel. But he goes on in verse 25 with that promise. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, this is the preparation of God is making them available to come and worship him. In verse 26, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. You must remember that the law of God, as we see in Moses, it was not able to change their hearts. It was not sufficient. It could temporarily prepare someone for worship, but it could not do that for all time. He goes on to say, I remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in all my statues and be careful to obey my rules. This is a wonderful promise of a father given to his rebellious son, who in essence is saying, I forgive you and I will draw you back to myself and I will love you and I will cherish you. In verse 28, he ends, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And I love these words and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What wonderful promise. Those are the same promise that God gives us in Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the promise of the new covenant that Jesus will accomplish through his death and resurrection. 
In reference to John's call to baptism of repentance, the New American Commentary notes that repentance here literally means a change of mind, but it refers more broadly to the human dimension, uh, dimension excuse me, involved in the experience of conversion, of repenting of your sin and turning for faith. We just spoke about that in our adult core class. In contrast to the divine element of regeneration or being born again. Meaning there's a turning from sin. There's a trusting in God. He is calling the Jewish people to do so. This this baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sin is not based on their own faith, but is going to be based on the future work that Christ will accomplish for the children of God. Then we come to the last point, not the last thing I want to share, but the last point that Luke has given us. And we find that in verse 4. As Luke points to the fulfilled prophecy of John the Baptist's ministry. Now go back and recite it with me at verse 4. It is here on the monitor if you need it. But in verse 4, Luke writes, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley, he says, shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now this passage contains several different prophecies that are found in different parts of the prophecy of the book of Isaiah. But the main part does come from chapter 40 that we read earlier in our scripture reading. Luke points out that John is the voice of the one that's crying in the wilderness. And his message is simple to prepare the way of the Lord. That's his one job. This message is directing Yahweh's children to get ready for the Messiah's arrival by making his path straight. Verse 5 details how they are to prepare in making his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now think of that. You think of a mountain, you and I, as we're driving between ranges here, think of every valley being filled, every mountain being made low. Talk about the work that that entails. And the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. Now, Landon already shared this with you, but if you don't mind, I'm going to share as well. One commentary notes that this command refers to when a monarch would travel in the wilderness regions. He would have a crew of worker, uh, workmen go ahead to make sure the road was clear of debris, obstructions, potholes, and other hazards that made the journey difficult. In a spiritual sense, John was calling for the people of Israel to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. Now you and I can understand this, these metaphors that are going on. We find the same thing today when the president, the governor, or other some special dignitary is visiting a city and the city streets are blocked off. Snipers are on the roof. Police are riding ahead to clear the traffic. Isaiah is painting a picture that all obstacles must and will be removed before the Messiah will appear. Scripture is pointing out that even the immovable, when he's speaking of valleys and mountains and the crooked, he says even the immovable, what you and I would consider the immovable, will be made removed or will be removed to make way for the king of kings. Now, yet Luke is pointing out that in John the Baptist's ministry, that these images are not real literal images. 
They're metaphors and they have ethical overtones. As we continue next week, we'll see this a little bit more clearly. In John's preaching that the mountains and the hills shall be made low and the crookeds shall become straight and the rough places are becoming level, that's referring actually to the proud and the arrogant who must be humbled. This humility comes when one recognizes their need to remove their sin through the repentance and it's symbolized by the act of obedience. So what he's saying here is that the thing that can keep Christ from coming, well, I shouldn't say that. That's not a proper way of saying it. But he's saying the way that you and I prepare our hearts is to humble ourselves. The arrogant and the proud will not be lifted up. It is only with humility and the removal of sin shall all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek. That's the spirit that God is looking for. So as we'll see this a little bit more clearly, what John is calling for here is you must humble yourselves. You must be baptized and repent of your sin. That's the only way forgiveness happens. He is calling for those to, to, to humble themselves and to accept as the king comes. <coughs> Through these six observations, Luke is given a certainty that John the Baptist was the promised prophet who comes in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the way, for the way of Jesus, the Messiah. His proclamation, his message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin was a forebearer of the message that Jesus himself would preach, repent and be baptized. His disciples and themselves would preach that message. And the gospel that would spread throughout the world for the salvation of God's children is the same today. Our response to that is to prepare the way for the Lord, is to humble our hearts by turning from sin and towards Scripture. Scripture promises us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and 5, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So John the Baptist's job was to come and prepare our hearts. The way you and I prepare our hearts for the Messiah is to humble ourselves. Without the work of the Holy Spirit humbling ourselves, we would never see the salvation of God. So how are you and I to respond to this message? How should you and I respond to this passage? How do we find certainty in John's ministry? I believe one way to understand this is to understand that you are not John the Baptist. Now, I know that's a funny statement and a weird statement to make, but many times I find that we put ourselves in the place of the heroes. We, we are the heroes. We imagine that you and I are, are John the Baptist. We're in the spirit of Elijah, and we're the ones telling everyone, be humble, prepare yourselves. In reality... You and I are the ones that are looking for a Messiah. We are the ones that are coming out and looking for something or someone to save us. But like the Jews of that time, they're not, surely, they're not quite sure what they're looking for. The world is the same way. They're looking for something. They just don't know what it is. 
They think, as I've said before, they need a life coach. They need a motivator. They just need to be improve themselves. For most people, it's just add Jesus and stir with water. All I need to do is just add Jesus to my life and my marriage will be better. Add Jesus to my retirement and I'll, I'll do better in the stock market. I just add Jesus to my family and so on and so forth. We know people like that. Maybe you were one of those type of people. Maybe you're one of those people today. If I just add Jesus to my life, things will be better. But that's the pride speaking. The Bible tells us that we need to understand who Jesus is. And that's going to become clear as we work our way through Luke. So we're not John the Baptist. We're the people who are blind and deaf that are stumbling into the wilderness looking for something to save us, to help us. And what the word comes back is to repent, to humble yourself, to see who God is. I love that phrase in Psalms, taste and see that God is good. That's the word that we need to share with others. So you and I are those that are coming saying, what do I need to do? Now, you and I know that we're not preparing for the first advent of Christ. He's come. That's happened. But you and I need to recognize that Christ is coming again. So though he's not sending a new Elijah to prepare the way, you and I should also, though, today still have hearts that are prepared and ready for Christ to come. Scripture informs us in Acts and Hebrews, you'll see these here on the monitor. The angels, as Jesus was getting ready to return to the Father. And as they're looking, they're seeing Jesus is ascending into heaven. The angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Hebrews, we love to give this verse. Just as appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, I love this is one that we don't always think of. So having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear what? A second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So you and I have a job to do. We are not John the Baptist in the fact that we are proclaiming the first advent of Christ, but you, are, you and I are like John the Baptist in a different sort of way, if I could. As we prepare our hearts for the second advent, we are like John the Baptist in that we have also received a word of God. Now, that's not a new word of God. God has not been silent for 460 years or for 2,000 years. You and I have God's word. It is the Bible. And he's given it to you and I. It is a completed canon. We have exactly that all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is sufficient. It is clear. It is necessary. All things, you and I have this word of God. And it shares with us how you and I are to live. It shares with us the message that we are to share with others. It gives us the expectations that the Father has for his children. You and I are to share that word. And like John the Baptist, we're to proclaim that Christ is coming. You and I know this, that there will be a day when Christ will come to bring his children home. The world is going to end in a fiery mess. 
We always make that joke. Everyone's worried, worried about climate change and what we're doing to the earth. Well, read 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Look what Christ is going to do to the world. It's going to melt in fervent heat, but he's going to be remaking it. Now, here's the thing. You and I have family and friends that do not know Christ. They are not ready for Christ to appear. So you and I have to recognize that. He will not come to forgive sins when he comes again, but to take those home, those who await eagerly for him. So you and I have an important, timely message. And scripture says today is a day of salvation. But also you and I are like John the Baptist in that our message is repent for the forgiveness of sin. Repent of your sin and turn towards Christ. In closing, John had one purpose in life. He had one job, one task. He was created one reason alone. And that was to point to Christ, to point to Jesus. I would say you and I only have one task in this life. We are created for one reason. That's to point to who Jesus is. I'd like to close with these words. It's found in John chapter 3 as the worship team makes their way up. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. When we come before the King of Kings with a humbled heart, ready to serve and make the way ready for him. With every head bowed, every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider John chapter 1 or three, excuse me, one through six. Are you one who is preparing the way for Christ's return? Do you recognize that you have a message to give, that you have a word from God that you're to share? Do you recognize that time is short? For one, let's give thanks for John the Baptist's ministry. For in it, the Messiah came and he gave us all things that you and I may become children of God. May we rejoice in that fact but we may also live out the pattern and the example of one who points to the life of Christ. Father, I pray that you make us sufficient for such things. Lord, in our lives, Lord, just remember that we have a task. And that task is not to live our lives to the best of our ability. It's not to have every Friday, uh, every day to be like Friday, but it's to serve you. Let us do that with love and compassion. And I pray, Lord, that you be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close out in our last song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. 
Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.